0: this is the new yorker fiction podcast from the new yorker magazine i'm Deborah treisman fiction editor at the new yorker each month we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss this month we're going to hear afternoon in linen by shirley jackson which was published in the new yorker in september of 1943
1: harriet mrs lennon said to the little girl Won't you play for Mrs. Cater? Play one of your own little tunes? I don't know any, the little girl said.
0: The story was chosen by Kristen Rupenian, whose debut story collection, You Know You Want This, was published last year and was just released in paperback under the title Cat Person and Other Stories. Hi, Kristen. Hi. So you knew when we first talked about doing the podcast that you wanted to read a story by Shirley Jackson. Why was that?
1: I mean, Shirley Jackson is and has been for years one of my absolutely favorite writers. It came into my mind as soon as you asked. And I also knew that she'd published a lot in The New Yorker and that there was a wider range of stories there than maybe people would know at first. And so I just was sure that the chance to dive into the archive and find a story by her that would be wonderful in all the ways she's always wonderful, but maybe a little bit unexpected.
0: Right. Right. Well, both of my children read The Lottery in sixth grade. Um, I'm wondering how you first encountered (laughs) Shirley Jackson.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, And in fact, it's a somewhat sideways way in that I read a story by her when I was very young, probably eight or nine. um, And it wasn't, it wasn't fiction. It was an excerpt from um, Life Among the Savages* in a humor collection that I just had on my bookshelf, um, a story about um, one of her children who comes home from school with a story about a very bad, misbehaving child in the class mm-hmm. um, who, spoiler alert, turns out to be imaginary. And then I got older into high school and then later college and read Shirley Jackson. And it took a long time before I put together that that story that I had read many, many times when I was just a kid was also, was actually also by um, this woman whose um, adult horror I really loved.
0: Right. And we do kind of think of Shirley Jackson as, as a writer of horror or mystery stories. Um, this particular story, Afternoon in Linen, do you think it falls into that category?
1: I do, although not on the surface, right? (laughs) I mean, I think it's unsettling, and maybe once we get into it, I can tell you the exact word that I think makes it a horror story. Um, But like everything that she writes, I think it's very, very funny, and it's also very scary. Um, And I think this one in particular, kind of the more you look at it, the scarier it becomes.
0: And horror is something that you're interested in, in in your own work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And also that line between the scary and the funny, the kind of, I would say, sort of discomfort um, that surrounds writing about kind of dark or taboo or just unsettling subjects. Um, I love exploring that. It's sort of my favorite nerve to press on.
0: Yeah. And interestingly, this story, like the nonfiction one you brought up, it it explores that darkness um, through the eyes of children.
1: Exactly, I think that's probably a big part of why it resonated with me, because it harkened back to that first story I ever read by her.
0: Yeah, well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Kristen Rupenian reading Afternoon in Linen by Shirley Jackson.
1: Afternoon in Linen. It was a long, cool room. Comfortably furnished and happily placed, with hydrangea bushes outside the large windows and their pleasant shadows on the floor. Everyone in it was wearing linen. The little girl in the pink linen dress with the wide blue belt, Mrs. Cater in a brown linen suit and a big yellow linen hat, Mrs. Lennon, who was the little girl's grandmother, in a white linen dress, and Mrs. Cater's little boy, Howard, in a blue linen shirt and shorts. Like an Alice through the looking glass, the little girl thought, looking at her grandmother, like the gentleman all dressed in white paper. I'm a gentleman all dressed in pink paper, she thought. Although Mrs. Lennon and Mrs. Cater lived on the same block and saw each other every day, this was a formal call, and so they were drinking tea. Howard was sitting at the piano at one end of the long room in front of the biggest window. He was playing humoresque in careful, unhurried tempo. I played that last year, the little girl thought. It's in G. Mrs. Lennon and Mrs. Cater were still holding their teacups, listening to Howard and looking at him, and now and then looking at each other and smiling. I could still play that if I wanted to, the little girl thought. When Howard had finished playing humoresque, He slid off the piano bench and came over and gravely sat down beside the little girl, waiting for his mother to tell him whether to play again or not. He's bigger than I am, she thought, but I'm older. I'm 10. If they ask me to play the piano for them now, I'll say no. I think you play very nicely, Howard, the little girl's grandmother said. There were a few moments of leaden silence. Then Mrs. Cater said, Howard, Mrs. Lennon spoke to you. Howard murmured and looked at his hands on his knees. I think he's coming along very well, Mrs. Cater said to Mrs. Lennon. He doesn't like to practice, but I think he's coming along well. Harriet loves to practice, the little girl's grandmother said. She sits at the piano for hours, making up little tunes and singing. She probably has a real talent for music, Mrs. Cater said. I often wonder whether Howard is getting as much out of his music as he should. Harriet, Mrs. Lennon said to the little girl, won't you play for Mrs. Cater? Play one of your own little tunes. I don't know any, the little girl said. Of course you do, dear, her grandmother said. I'd like very much to hear a little tune you made up yourself, Harriet, Mrs. Cater said. I don't know any. The little girl said. Mrs. Lennon looked at Mrs. Cater and shrugged. Mrs. Cater nodded, mouthing shy, and turned to look proudly at Howard. The little girl's grandmother set her lips firmly in a tight, sweet smile. Harriet, dear, she said, even if we don't want to play our little tunes, I think we ought to tell Mrs. Cater that music is not our forte. I think we ought to show her our really fine achievements in another line. Harriet, she continued, turning to Mrs. Cater, has written some poems. I'm going to ask her to recite them to you, because I feel, even though I may be prejudiced, she laughed modestly, even though I probably am prejudiced, that they show real merit. Well, for heaven's sake, Mrs. Cater said. She looked at Harriet, pleased. Why, dear, I didn't know you could do anything like that. I'd really love to hear them. Recite one of your poems for Mrs. Cater, Harriet. The little girl looked at her grandmother, at the sweet smile, and at Mrs. Cater leaning forward, and at Howard sitting with his mouth open and a great delight growing in his eyes. Don't know any, she said. Harriet, her grandmother said, even if you don't remember any of your poems, you have some written down, I'm sure Mrs. Cater won't mind if you read them to her. The huge merriment that had been gradually taking hold of Howard suddenly overwhelmed him. Poems, he said, doubling up with laughter on the couch. Harriet writes poems. He'll tell all the kids on the block, the little girl thought. I do believe Howard's jealous, Mrs. Cater said. Aw, Howard said. I wouldn't write a poem you couldn't make me write a poem if you tried. You couldn't make me either, the little girl said. That's all a lie about the poems. There was a long silence. Then, why Harriet, the little girl's grandmother said in a sad voice. What a thing to say about your grandmother, Mrs. Cater said. I think you'd better apologize, Harriet, the little girl's grandmother said. Mrs. Cater said, why, you certainly had better. I didn't do anything, the little girl muttered. I'm sorry. The grandmother's voice was stern. Now bring your poems out and read them to Mrs. Cater. I don't have any, honestly, grandma, the little girl said desperately. Honestly, I don't have any of those poems. Well, I have, the grandmother said. Bring them to me from the top desk drawer. The little girl hesitated for a minute, watching her grandmother's straight mouth and frowning eyes. Howard will get them for you, Mrs. Lennon, Mrs. Cater said. Sure, Howard said. He jumped up and ran over to the desk, pulling open the drawer. What do they look like? He shouted. In an envelope, the grandmother said tightly in a brown envelope with Harriet's poetry written on the front. Here it is, Howard said. He pulled some papers out of the envelope and studied them a moment. Look, he said, Harriet's poems about stars. He ran to his mother, giggling and holding out the papers. Look, mother, Harriet's poetry is about stars. Give them to Mrs. Lennon, dear, Howard's mother said. It was very rude to open the envelope first. Mrs. Lennon took the envelope and the papers and held them out to Harriet. Will you read them or shall I? She asked kindly. Harriet shook her head. The grandmother sighed at Mrs. Cater and took up the first sheet of paper. Mrs. Cater leaned forward eagerly and Howard settled down at her feet, hugging his knees and putting his face against his leg to keep from laughing. The grandmother cleared her throat, smiled at Harriet, and began to read. The Evening Star, she announced. When evening shadows are falling, and dark gathers closely around, and all the night creatures are calling, and the wind makes a lonesome sound, I wait for the first star to come out, and look for its silvery beams. When the blue and green twilight is all about, and grandly a lone star gleams. Howard could contain himself no longer. Harriet writes poems about stars. Why, it's lovely, Harriet, dear, Mrs. Cater said. I think it's really lovely, honestly. I don't see what you're so shy about it for. There, you see, Harriet, Mrs. Lennon said. Mrs. Cater thinks your poetry is very nice. Now, aren't you sorry you made such a fuss about such a little thing? You'll tell all the kids on the block, Harriet thought. I didn't write it, she said. Why, Harriet? Her grandmother laughed. You don't need to be so modest, child. You write very nice poems. I copied it out of a book, Harriet said. I found it in a book, and I copied it and gave it to my old grandmother and said I wrote it. I don't believe you'd do anything like that, Harriet, Mrs. Cater said, puzzled. I did so, Harriet maintained stubbornly. I copied it right out of a book. Harriet, I don't believe you, her grandmother said. Harriet looked at Howard, who was staring at her in admiration. I copied it out of a book, she said to him. I found the book in the library one day. I can't imagine her saying she did such a thing, Mrs. Lennon said to Mrs. Cater. Mrs. Cater shook her head. It was a book called, Harriet thought a moment, called The Home Book of Verse, she said. That's what it was, and I copied every single word. I didn't make up one. Harriet, is this true, her grandmother said. She turned to Mrs. Cater. I'm afraid I must apologize for Harriet and for reading you the poem under false pretenses. I never dreamed she'd deceive me. Oh, they do, Mrs. Cater said deprecatingly. They want attention and praise and sometimes they'll do almost anything. I'm sure Harriet didn't mean to be, well, dishonest. I did so, Harriet said. I wanted everyone to think I wrote it. I said I wrote it on purpose. She went over and took the papers out of her grandmother's unresisting hand. And you can't look at them anymore either, she said, and held them in back of her, away from everyone.
0: That was Kristen Rupenian, reading Afternoon in Linen by Shirley Jackson. The story appeared in The New Yorker in September of 1943 and was included in The Lottery and Other Stories, which was reissued by FSG Classics last year. So, Kristen, on the surface, this is a small slice of domestic life in which two old friends are trying to one-up one another <laughs> with their son and granddaughter's accomplishments, and yet you referred to it um, before the story as a horror story. So tell me tell me where that word is <laughs> that makes it a horror <laughs> story for you.
1: Sure. Um, well, it's, it's at the end, so I guess we'll sort of start late in the story. Um, it's the adjective unresisting she went over and took the papers out of her grandmother's unresisting Mm. hand. There was something about that that made it feel like a little murder. And I just love it. I mean, this story is so funny. And I feel like I come to it like all of Shirley Jackson's. I read it in a slightly different mood and I see a very different story. Um, And so there have been moments when I've read it and I'm like, feel almost triumphant, I'm Like go Harriet, tear down their <laughs> hypocrisy, <laughs> you know, and then it feels it feels sort of almost exultant. But I do think that moment of unresisting where Harriet has just kind of followed this decision of hers to the very end, does kind of hit me like a punch in the gut and feels dark and unsettling.
0: Because she's basically just destroyed her grandmother?
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because she just refused to take any of the exits that her grandmother offered her and right. just kind of kept walking in this one direction. And her grandmother is defeated at the end, unresisting.
0: I feel like in that first paragraph, uh, Jackson gives us this little clue to what's what's coming when she compa- Harriet compares her situation to Alice through the looking glass. Um and gives us the sense that suddenly everything's going to be turned upside down. Do you think that that, that's why that's planted there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love that reference. I think the vision of a little girl... Kind of walking further and further into strangeness, which is what Alice means to me, is absolutely there. Um, I think there's some gender stuff going on in the story, just like very far around the edges. And the way that she thinks of herself not as a girl dressed in pink paper, but as a gentleman dressed in pink paper mm-hmm. is a little bit odd and sort of hints to some of the stuff that will come later. Um, and also, just that it, it, sets her at the beginning as a kind of literary child. And I think, I don't know if this is true of you, but I feel like there is no character I will follow farther into bad behavior than a little girl who reads books. And so <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the first paragraph really does kind of masterfully set her up as someone who's, I mean, she's bright, she's daydreamy, she's literary, and she's about to sort of set it all on fire.
0: <laughs> and and she's seeing herself as a character.
1: Exactly. As, a, as exactly. a fictional
0: character, in a sense.
1: Yeah. And there's something a little bit um, paper dollish about the way that she talks about them. To be dressed in pink paper brings out to me an image of sort of flat people moving mm-hmm. across the screen. And I feel like there's something about that in the story itself, that there's a certain flatness. The way that the narrator calls them the little girl and the grandmother doesn't adopt their names gives them a sort of feeling of like that they're being played with a little bit like dolls
0: right what do you make of the the setup for the story you know we have mrs cater and mrs lennon who see each other every day it says why have they set up this formal tea date
1: i mean it's funny, because I feel like that's the kind of question Harriet might ask, right? She sort of does. Like, why <laughs> exactly. are we doing this? Yeah. Exactly. Like, this seems like a performance. It seems like we're pretending, but for whom? So I think, on the one hand, there's nothing more natural than for two friends to get together and drink tea and have a little party, but also the sort of performative aspect of it, the feeling as though there's a falseness. Mm-hmm. Um and often, I think, in, in Shirley Jackson stories and just generally, um, children are the ones who are going to be the perspective through which you kind of poke through um, that false surface.
0: Right. There's a there's certain artifice on the part of the, uh, the adults in the room.
1: Right. And I think inherently there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like that first paragraph is lovely. Like all the images of the hydrangeas and the shadows and the linen and the different – this story, I think, if you only read this first paragraph – there's a strangeness to it. There's the literary aspect, but you don't know how badly things are going to go. It looked perfect <laughs> from the
0: beginning. Yeah. 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 Why do you think it does go so badly? I mean, Harriet can she she anticipates everything her grandmother's going to say and do and thinks it thinks ahead to her responses mm-hmm. to those things. Why why doesn't she find some way to distract her from this sort of disastrous line of of prods?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, because I think there are a lot of questions about why she does what she does, and how, and what's motivating her at various points. So, um, for example, I mean, she's ready to fight from the beginning, right? Before the word poetry has arisen, Mm -hmm. she does not want to do what her um, grandmother and Mrs. Cater are going to want her to do. She's ready to rebel. And I think that's, Hints partly at the artifice that we were talking about before. She doesn't want to perform. I think she also doesn't want to be put in competition with Howard. And that's a little bit I might be overreading here, but I do feel like the thing about I'm a gentleman in pink paper has a little bit of an echo here where she doesn't want to compete with Howard. She thinks she's better than he is. She's like, I can play that song. He's less than me but also he's bigger than me, but yeah. I'm older, right? Like she's setting up this competition that maybe she is already starting to think is a little bit rigged.
0: Right. I mean, she doesn't want to compete, but at the same time, she's incredibly competitive. Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. It's as though she thinks it's beneath her to compete, right? She's like, how dare they? I can do this. I shouldn't have to perform. Maybe they should recognize my worth. But then the question that you asked originally, I think is is more like, what would be, what would have been a more natural way for her to escape the situation? You know, should she have just played the piano?
0: Or spill a cup of tea on herself, create <laughs> exactly, a
1: diversion. Exactly, run away. <laughs> um, and I think maybe she wants, like, if you think about the line, um, you know, she's she's fighting, she's or she's competing with Howard on her head. I could still play that if I wanted to. And she's anticipating a rebellion. If they ask me to play the piano for them now, I'll say No. She's not even at the beginning looking for a way to escape the situation. She's looking for a way to kind of be defiant and to say, you can't make me play this game of of dress up and performance. And I think the interesting question is why, you know, why, if she's so competitive, if she's so sure that she can beat Howard and impress everyone, why she doesn't want to. And I think that's a pretty interesting psychological question about Harriet. How would you answer it? Um, I think there are a couple of possibilities and I think a lot of it depends on how you read her relationship both to Howard and to her grandmother and to her art if we're gonna talk about it that way right like I think you could read Harriet on the one hand as like I mean, maybe she's just too authentic and she just loves her art and she doesn't want to bring it into this false situation. But I'm not sure that that is exactly right. I think that's a little too idealistic a reading of Harriet. Um, There's the question of sort of the other kids and her shame. I think you could read the story also when she's saying to, you know, she's thinking to herself, Howard, he's going to tell everyone. He's going to tell everyone. I think you could also read it as like a kind of, shame about being artsy and girly, right? Like not wanting to be exposed as someone who like actually cares about something as silly as poems by Howard, who thinks poems are ridiculous. But I kind of think that can't be it or only it either, because if it were, then she would have just agreed to play the piano, right? Because Howard also had to play the piano. There would have been no shame of exposure. She could have just played the piano and gotten away with it. I don't know, it's like a protectiveness about her own creativity and her own art that just rebels at exposure and also having them used to sort of prove any kind of point. But then the other question I want to ask before I get too far into that is, do you think there's any chance Harriet didn't write the poem? Is there any chance that you would read someone would read the story and be like, oh, Harriet was exposed for the plagiarist? She is. <laughs> um,
0: I don't read it that way because no, me either. Um, if that if that were true, she wouldn't be so humiliated by the idea of her of her poems being trotted out in this way. She She just pushes so hard on it at the end that it can't be true.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. But also like the moment where I feel like is her moment of greatest creativity is when she comes up with the name of the anthology that she read it in when she says, Oh, it was from, and she thought a moment, the home book of verse. Right. I feel like that is the perfect name for (laughs) the kind of book that this kind of poem would have been collected in. Right. I also wonder, reading it, what Harriet thinks of her own poetry. And I also, you say, like she she's humiliated. You think Harriet, by the end of it, is humiliated?
0: I think she's doing everything she can to avoid being humiliated by Howard. And you can so easily imagine the the way that someone be would be tormented at that age for writing poems and having right. to read them in front of the boy who thinks he's too cool for you.
1: Of course. But I also think that even if Howard weren't there, she wouldn't want to read her poems for Mrs. Cater and for her grandmother, that there's something about being forced to read them performatively at all. That is what makes her angry and ready to fight. And she'd rather sort of set them on fire and disown them, disavow them um, rather than have them be read for two old ladies who will call them pretty. Mm -hmm. that is bigger than just Howard and playground humiliation. (sighs) Yeah, I don't know. I just keep kind of poking at it or like it's just a feeling that I have that it's about sort of your relationship to the things that you write um, and about reception. That's even more than I'm afraid the kids are going to make fun of me. It's that this is something that I did that is for me and is private. And to be forced to sort of stand up and own it at all is a kind of insult.
0: Right. She's she's refusing the, the, the public, public representation of her art. On the other hand, she gave her poems to her grandmother completely willingly.
1: Exactly. So is it the presence of just even one more person? Or is it the context of An Afternoon in Linen? Probably that explains the title, right? Where um, she gave them to her in one context and the transplanting into a different one, one of kind of falseness and dress up is what makes her rebel.
0: Right. Or is it the context of of her being used in, mm-hmm. in this competition between the two old ladies? Exactly.
1: I think that's absolutely right, that she is being treated like a doll. And this is, again, I think what sort of edges it into horror, how bad it makes her look. I mean, when Mrs. Cater says oh, they do. They want attention and praise and sometimes they'll do almost anything. I'm sure Harriet didn't mean to be well dishonest. I mean, just like that line, they want attention and praise and sometimes they'll do almost anything. It's just such a like ugly vision of children people in general and also so far beyond who Harriet is she is through the looking glass at that point right like by making making this claim for authenticity and not wanting to perform she's being read as exactly the opposite of who she is and is being used as evidence for like this totally false way of being in the world that she hates
0: Ruth Franklin, uh, who wrote the biography Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life, called this story a savage snapshot of the gleeful cruelty of which children are capable. Um, so I'm wondering if you read it that way and also what you make of the word gleeful because I, I don't see a lot of glee in this story unless it's in Howard.
1: Right. I mean, I'll, I guess I'll say first, I love that biography. That yeah. is my favorite literary biography probably <laughs> of all time. Um, um, but... I agree. I think um, it sort of splits, right? I think Howard is gleeful and I think Harriet is savage. I don't think they you can put them both together. Cruelty is an interesting question. I mean, I think, yeah, there's a little bit of cruelty, right? There is the sort of base cruelty of Howard, um, his just desire instantly to sort of get a leg up and enjoy the humiliation that he anticipates coming um, of Harriet. And I think Harriet is savage and she is cruel. I think there is some real, and I say that with all like enthusiasm for her as a character and and empathy for that impulse. I think the unresisting hand of the grandmother, she could have backed off. She could have claimed to have plagiarized the poems and then backed off. She had many more exits after that, right? To just be like, yeah, I just wanted to impress grandma or I did it, but I knew it was wrong. There is cruelty by the end. You know, when she says, I did it on purpose. I wanted everyone to think that I wrote it. Also, when she says, my old grandmother, I gave them to my old grandmother. I mean, what is that but cruel? And what is that but savage? I mean, whatever the betrayal is from the grandmother of forcing Harriet to perform, like Harriet pays her back more than in kind. I mean, that's the thing about Shirley Jackson, right? Is like, she never she never stops, (laughs) you know, her characters are going to go to the extreme. And um, I mean, honestly, the truth is I can imagine writing a poem and being ashamed of it and not wanting to read it. I can't imagine Eve ever having the boldness and the sort of lack of shame that comes from being able to be like, I'd rather you think I was a plagiarist. I always, my whole life cared more about what the adults thought than to be able to have the bravery of just being like, fine
0: believe this. Right. You were the, the one that Mrs. Cater's is talking about, the one who wants the attention and the exactly. praise. Exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. I absolutely was. And I think that's why some of the giddiness of reading a story like this, where you see a child who's sort of like you, but like the shadow self. Right.
0: Yeah. I don't I don't read Harriet as ashamed of the poems. I read her as quite proud of them but maybe she doesn't think her audience is worthy.
1: (laughs) I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, maybe she wouldn't have as strong a reaction if she were wholly proud of the poems. The only hint of shame that I can maybe identify is that when she says they were in the home book of verse, it's funny to think about if you close read the poem and thought about, is this a good poem? Is this a bad poem? Is it a poem by a child? Um, is it a sentimental poem? Right. Cause it is a little bit of a sentimental poem and you would never guess that Harriet from her behavior in the story is a sentimental child, um, but she's writing about stars. And I think maybe stars for Harriet and poems about stars for Harriet are a little bit, if not shameful, then like vulnerable,
0: right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm.
1: something that's like really cared for and like, uh, yeah, a little bit childish in terms of the attachment that she has for them. And that's why having this poem that I think she probably knows is certainly, you know, better than anything Howard could write, but still is a kind of raw or tender spot.
0: Yeah. There there are so many contests happening in the story simultaneously. You know, you have the, the two women who want to compete to have the most accomplished child or grandchild Mm -hmm. and you have Howard and Harriet who in a sense are competing for the ability to to have power over the other one Mm -hmm. um, or to humiliate the other one. And you've got Harriet and her grandmother who are just fighting for control of the situation. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Do you think there's a winner in any of those battles?
1: Well, I think, I mean, Unresisting hand. I mean, I think Harriet defeats her grandmother, although at what cost? Right, at what cost to herself? I think Harriet and Howard, I mean, I guess it, there's the moment where Howard is looking at Harriet with sort of a gleam of admiration in his eyes. I think in terms of the playground battle, mm-hmm. Harriet definitely won, you mm-hmm. know, that the story she'll be able to tell or that Howard will tell is kind of. Badass, essentially, (laughs) Um, for for children. Um, I think Howard and his mother are on the same team, right? Like, he wants to set himself up as, like, too cool for school. And as, like, and Harriet is this embarrassing child who writes poems. But really, he's completely, like, he's not in competition with his mom. He would like to rebel, but he doesn't have the willpower. Um, You know, he looks at his hands and doesn't answer and then as soon as he sort of prodded, he plays his part, right? Um, and so I think he, in the end, wins in the sense that, like, because he and his mom stay on the same team, or as Harriet and her grandmother, like, split, that he sort of partakes in his mother's victory over... Um, over Mrs. Lennon, which is the sort of worst victory, right? The yeah. like woman who gets to sort of have the obedient kind of mindless child who's willing to perform. And so she avoids humiliation while um, Mrs. Lennon is kind of completely devastated. I feel like that's the grossest competition of betrayal because I feel like Harriet's fight is kind of admirable, but the consequence that like Mrs. Lennon is humiliated in front of Mrs. Cater is just unpleasant and kind of
0: yeah. dark. yeah. Harriet was going to be the grandmother's pawn in the battle and and then the grandmother becomes her pawn.
1: Exactly, yeah. Um,
0: So the story was written in, I believe in 1942, published in 1943, when obviously there's a a backdrop of international Mm. one-upmanship. Of course, it's not a direct allegory of anything, but do you think that the, the context of war kind of plays a part here? or was huh. part of the larger thinking about the story?
1: I think it absolutely could be. It hadn't occurred to me until you said it. But I think maybe it does add a kind of undercurrent of ominousness in terms of like the people wearing linen, playing dress-up, and drinking tea, mm-hmm. and like a sort of pretty facade in front of a darker and messier backdrop, which is the basic setup here. Um, I think if you imagine it happening during or around wartime, that is emphasized. And then, I mean, in terms of like allyship, maybe, right. you know, right. of like who you're forced to kind of identify with, you know, that Harriet doing this, kind of disgusting thing or like maybe necessary thing for her own soul or whatever to defeat her grandmother sort of ends up siding with Howard in that uglier, you know, like she, she gives Howard and his grandmother power because she needs them to defeat her grandmother. But um, again, sort of maybe not in the end worth it. So yeah, I could see it. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I
0: think, you know, obviously struggles were, were probably on Jackson's mind.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, I think definitely struggles and just sort of like, I think um, one of the things that's always on her mind is a kind of like ethical ambivalence and a sense that like even when you're doing the right thing, you're also doing the wrong thing, which I feel like in probably around that time, you know, in the 1940s where like a lot of the sort of morality tales were very simple, you know, and she was always telling stories that were much darker and, le- and more of ambiguous and the sense you know none of her stories leave you feeling with that you have a clear sense of like a moral universe in which yeah. you're capable of acting
0: yeah yeah it's not not necessarily the the side of good and right that wins
1: exactly exactly and not even setting yourself up to want that do you know what i mean like harriet's not on the side of right in any kind of mm-hmm. easily articulable way but you are still find yourself like rooting for her because her feelings are so intense
0: yeah what she's doing is self protection, really.
1: Yeah, it's it's self protection and a kind of like <laughs> radical honesty, right? Like even though she's lying, she's <laughs> trying to like say something that's really true. And I think that we all feel, which is like it's an invasion to have to like expose yourself to please other people and to sort of be forced to perform that that hatred of performance. I feel like I really feel um, and get and remember from being a kid, right? Just having to be up there. Impressing other people because mm-hmm. your parents need you to. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, as
0: we were talking about earlier, it's a kind of domestic story with a hint at horror. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you think is the root of the horror in Jackson's work in general? Is it in the domestic? Obviously, it is in the lottery.
1: Yeah, definitely um, in the domestic. I feel like often the feeling that I have when reading a Shirley Jackson story is that like things feel flat and a little overly simple and then they open up in this really kind of like wrenching way and then you feel kind of like you're in a free fall in a way that you wouldn't necessarily if the characters had been from the beginning really fleshed out or really kind of fully three-dimensional. I think Mm -hmm. the pink paper stuff at the beginning, I think maybe part of what feels so great about that is it is a kind of microcosm of the way a lot of her stories are, which is you feel like you're seeing these very familiar characters arranged in a very sort of familiar scene. Um, And then they kind of move around as they should for a while. And then things kind of explode very quickly and, and go very badly in a way that doesn't sort of feel... You, I feel often reading her that I oughtn't to care as much about these characters who feel a little bit, not flimsy, but just like sort of like simply drawn.
0: Right. Outlined. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's true of like when you think about The Haunting of Hill House, what I think is kind of funny about that story, which has been kind of adapted so many times in film. And it's because the setup is so straightforward as a horror story. Like a bunch of people go to a house that might be haunted and investigate it. Everybody thinks like what could be more straightforwardly scary. And I think no adaptations managed to capture what is actually scary about the novel, The Haunting of Hill House, because so much of it is internal and just like everything being a little bit off literally the dimensions of the house, right, are just a little bit wrong. And it's that kind of small wrongness amplified that I think makes the stories terrifying. And it's hard to put that on film or really even to explain it we're trying to say, what is so scary that happens in The Haunted of Hill House? Well, the angles are kind of wrong and she wakes up and she thinks that she's holding someone's hand in bed, but she's not, like, it doesn't capture it. It doesn't capture that, that yeah. sort of vertigo.
0: Yeah, it's in what's felt and not in what's seen
1: yeah yeah and like the difficulty of articulating exactly what's wrong is maybe part of what's so uncomfortable yeah so
0: at the moment we've all been pretty much thrown into our, our domestic lives 24 7 whether whether we want it or not um in this strange time in which there's a, an air of threat out there mm-hmm. um we have to live in seclusion, I can easily imagine this situation fueling a Shirley Jackson story, you know?
1: It's true.
0: Do you think it'll fuel one for
1: you? I mean, yes, although it's hard to know in exactly what way. And it's really hard to know in what way to try and capture these feelings it's just such a dramatic break in the texture of your life that it feels as though there's so clearly a be- going to be a before and an after. And when, when I write about anything, right, like I'm in the middle of r- trying to write a novel, when is it set? Like uh, six months ago, I could, someone could go to a party and it could be anywhere in the past decade or two. And now it just feels like you have to make a decision. Is it before we were all locked up? in our houses and parties felt like the most dangerous thing or is it set after? And if it's set after, well, how will it feel to go to a party in the future? I don't know. But so is everything that I write supposed to be historical fiction now or (laughs) should it be set now? But I can't write about now. I can never in any of my work, write about what's happening now. I need 10 years to understand how I feel about everything. And yet I can't write now about 10 years ago without it feeling just like incredibly dated and kind of like, a hundred as though it were a hundred years ago it's really strange and and unsettling and hard to know how it will shape what gets written both now I mean to be totally honest very little is getting written now but like whatever (laughs) is getting written now and then what will get written you know even in a month or in a year it feels like something you need a decade to process
0: yeah well thank you so much Kristen yeah thank you very much Shirley Jackson, who died in 1965, was the author of six novels, including The Haunting of Hill House and We Have Always Lived in the Castle, and more than 200 short stories, some of which were included in The Lottery and Other Stories. Random House will publish Jackson's collected letters in 2021. Kristen Rupenian is the author of the story collection You Know You Want This, which is now out in paperback under the title Cat Person and Other Stories. You can download more than 150 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast sections of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.